Well, good morning and welcome to Aletheia Church. Uh, my name is Kevin. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, we are glad to have you here with us this morning. Uh, parents of elementary school age kids, your kids will actually be in service with us this morning. Um, if you need to grab uh, one of the activity books for them out at the Aletheia Junior check-in table, you may do so, but they'll actually be uh, in the service with us this morning. If this is your first time with us and you have not yet gotten a scripture journal, uh, it's just a copy of the Gospel of John, which we are studying together as a church uh, during our, t- our preaching and teaching time on Sunday mornings. If you would like one, just raise your hand. That's our free gift to you. Uh, it's just a copy of the Gospel of John and a place where you can take notes and follow along. Uh, we have some volunteers around here that would love to pass one out to you. Uh, and we just want you to have that because we love the Word of God here at Aletheia Church. Uh, we believe that God speaks to us from his word, that if we want to know who he is and who we are and how we might know him better, how we might follow him better and obey him uh, and know him and experience all the joy and peace that comes from knowing him, uh, we believe that that's only going to come through his word. And so uh, we want you to have that in your hands. And so please take that as our gift to you. We would just ask that you would bring it back and take notes over the weeks and months ahead. And if you're in a gospel community group, which we highly recommend you join, uh, it's a great thing to bring with you so that you can kind of continue the discussion of what the Holy Spirit might stir up in your heart as you're here on Sunday morning. So our text this morning is really just a continuation of what I talked about last Sunday. And I would encourage you, um, if you weren't able to be here last week or if you haven't had an opportunity to listen to the sermon yet, uh, to go online and, and find that on YouTube and, and listen to that sermon. It will give you more context to this morning. So, you know, take your day off tomorrow or whatever it is this week if you haven't had an opportunity yet and go back and listen to that. But let me just give a really, really brief recap of what happened last week, just so you have some idea of what's going on if you weren't able to be here uh, last week. So, Uh, We are at the portion of John's gospel where Jesus has finally arrived in Jerusalem for the week of his passion or the week where he'll be crucified uh, by the Romans. And as he enters into Jerusalem, there are a number of various reactions to his arrival. And last week, what I had shared with you guys was that Jesus arrives in Jerusalem as a king. That for all uh, intents and purposes, what we see here in John chapter 12 is kind of like the coronation of King Jesus as he arrives in Jerusalem. And that some of these reactions are in response to that coronation, so to speak. And so there's a, just because the crowd's there for the coronation, much like there are coronations or uh Uh, When we elect a new president here, that some people are excited about it, some people aren't, some people are just reporting on it. There's a a number of different reactions uh, to that coronation uh, or that swearing in of the president, but there were a number of reactions to Jesus and his arrival in Jerusalem. And the first one was political, that many of the people that had come outside of Jerusalem to lay down palm branches and sing praises as he was entering in the city— hailed him as a king or messiah who was coming to rescue Israel from Roman occupation. The next group was his own disciples, who we kind of had a laugh about, were still confused as to what Jesus was doing. They continued to obey him and do what he asked and sat underneath of his teaching. And yet as they're entering Jerusalem, they still are unsure of what their leader is doing. Kind of bizarre after three years, I know, but it's still going on. 
Then we saw the religious leaders and their response to the crowds that had gathered for Jesus was one of fear, frustration, and anger. They're saying, we've done everything we can to possibly prevent this guy from starting a movement and irritating the Romans and leading an insurrection. And yet here we are some three years later outside of Jerusalem, and this guy's being hailed as a king as he enters Jerusalem. And then we saw the fourth group, which for the first time was maybe the, the, the most important group to show up. And that was the Greeks or the Gentiles. They were likely God-fearing Greeks who had shown up for the Passover, but out of curiosity, they sought an audience with Jesus. They sought to meet him and figure out who this guy was. And you need to understand just something from like cultural context. Um, Jews and Greeks did not intermingle. This was not something that happened during this time period. And so for these um, God-fearing Greeks to show up at the Passover, to see Jesus and then seek to have an audience with him was kind of a big deal, which is why you see Andrew kind of and Philip responding the way that they respond there in John chapter 12. They're like, we don't really know, like, is this allowed? Like, is, is, is Jesus going to allow this? We're not really sure what's going on here. And when they come to ask Jesus if, they, if he will meet with these Greeks, we see Jesus give this profound announcement to those who are around him. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now remember, this is his coronation, so to speak. So there may still be some confusion amongst those that are hearing this. But as he speaks about this and he speaks about his glory of this coming hour, he was referring to his coming murder and crucifixion. He is saying, in the way that a king goes up on the throne and receives a crown to take their kingdom and to begin to rule, I will be lifted up on the cross and that will be my moment of glory and coronation for the king of kings. Instead of a massive celebration and a huge party, Jesus' glory and coronation are heading towards his murder. And his disciples are obviously confused and You as the reader may even be confused, especially if you didn't grow up in the church or are unfamiliar with Jesus's ministry, but this is Jesus's plan all along. It is the very reason he came to earth because on that cross is where he would satisfy the wrath of God and forgive us for our sins. And so Jesus's entire trajectory And ministry has been leading to this point, his betrayal and murder. I mean, just pause and think about that for a moment. That God's son in the flesh has lived his entire life to lead up to this moment. That he knows this is the reason why he's come. And in that moment, is where he makes his strongest appeal to those who are listening to them. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. See, what Jesus is saying there as he heads to the cross is he's telling those of us 
who would consider his claims, those who are wrestling whether he is really God's son, wrestling with whether he is really the promised Messiah that that God had promised he would send to rescue God's people. He's saying, die to what you think this world will offer you and follow after me instead. I love how Pastor Tony Morita puts it. He says, Jesus is saying, following me is about dying to self. Don't exalt yourself. There is nothing there worth exalting anyway. And so Jesus leaves us with this appeal that to know God, to follow after him, to know who we truly are, to receive the mercy and forgiveness of God and to know that we are loved means that we die to self and follow after him because he is worthy. And so this morning, Jesus is going to explain this in more detail. He's going to explain himself and what he's about to do and what he's about to experience, and he's going to show us why this must come to pass. And so we're going to see three things. We're going to see Jesus' distress at his coming crucifixion and the Father's comfort to him. We're going to see the victory of the cross. And then we're going to see Jesus' appeal again to us to trust in the light. And spoiler alert, Jesus is the light. He's not talking about some concept or philosophical idea. I think one of the main things that we need to recapture as Christians is that our hope is not in some philosophy. Our hope is not in some worldview. It is in a person. It is in Jesus Christ who died on the cross, was buried, and rose again. And he calls himself the light of the world, and he appeals to us to trust in him. So go with me to John chapter 12, starting in verse 27. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had, a, that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. I don't know where everyone is this morning. Some of you guys might be here because you're new in town and you've made some friends that attend this church and they've begged you to come. Some of you may have grown up in the South and this is just what you do, right? You go to church and your parents may even like follow your tracker on your iPhone to make sure that you're here. Some of you guys may have been following Jesus for years, and you're here to worship him this morning because that's what the saints do on Sunday morning. They gather together to worship God and make much of him and be reminded of what he's done for us. And some of you may have no idea why you're here at all, and that's fine. But something that I think that often gets lost when we consider Jesus and we think about him, especially I've noticed this more so amongst Christians, 
Those that have grown up in the church and spent time studying the Bible and maybe having grown up with a knowledge of who he is, is that I think we have a tendency to overlook the humanity of Jesus. Even if we know, you know, theological facts that Jesus is fully God and fully man, we sometimes view Jesus's divinity as an excuse to explain away the really, the very real human experiences that he had as he walked the earth. And especially in regards to maybe our own growth and obedience to God and his word. And someone might say, well, we look to Jesus as an, as an example of how we might follow the father. And we maybe subconsciously or maybe even verbally say things like, well, yeah, but he's God's son. So like, and he's God. So like, it's easier for him. And I, I can't really relate with him because he's God. And as we see Jesus Speaking out loud to a crowd here, and I don't know how many are there. It's clearly his disciples, probably some of the Greeks that had asked to have an audience with him. We actually see something super interesting. Jesus is deeply troubled with what he's about to walk through. You know, John doesn't record in his gospel um, the, the night before his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. But if you read one of the other gospel accounts, you notice that as Jesus is there pr praying, he's in agony and anguish over what's about to take place in his life. But here, John records another moment of that same anguish and sorrow that he's experiencing. The prospect of his impending torture and crucifixion is daunting here to Jesus. Surely, the path before him is not an easy one for him to follow. And I think sometimes we make Jesus's crucifixion and torture out to be something easier than it actually was. We tend to, maybe not intentionally, reduce the horror of it because Jesus is God's son in the flesh. Failing to realize the humanity and the horror of what he went through. See, it's easy to make comments like, well, Jesus was able to do that because he's God's son in the flesh. And these comments, while containing some level of truth, devalue the reality of Jesus's humanity and pain. His suffering, the trials he endured in the flesh. You know, this past week, my, my sons and I are working through a devotional um, that I highly recommend to any of you guys who are parents. It's called Long Story Short. You can grab it. It's, it, it's a great way to kind of lead your kids through the totality of Scripture. But this past week, we were learning about creation and God's creation of man and woman. And one of the days during the week was, was we looked forward to how Jesus related to our passage in Genesis. And the, we were taken to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul calls Jesus the second Adam. And what he means by that is that Jesus, the second Adam, does all the things that the first father, Adam, didn't do. Endure trials and temptations. Endure sufferings and yet remain faithful and obedient to his father. 
See, something that Paul understood and he wants us to understand, and something that I think we need to see here in John chapter 12 as Jesus is beginning this road to his crucifixion, is we need to see and understand and look even at Jesus' own admission here that he is in anguish over what he is about to go through. Because the cross is horrifying. If you've never seen The Passion of the Christ, I highly recommend watching it at some point. It is a visible demonstration on some level of what Jesus endured so that he might rescue God's people. And I'm not just sharing this to make you feel guilty about what Jesus went through. We're not just talking about this so that we can have some proper, even theological understanding of Jesus' humanity, although that is important. No, doctrine is only as important as it is to remind us and tell us and reveal to us who God is and how we might relate to him. And I share this with us because I want you here this morning to take this away. Jesus Christ is alive. And he is currently ruling at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And he, as your faithful high priest is able to relate to you in every single difficulty you might face in this life. There is nothing that you can walk through in this life that Jesus is not intimately aware of and does not have an understanding of. It is so easy for us as humans to recognize Jesus' divinity and just dismiss his humanity. And when we do that, we fail to recognize the love that God has towards us and the care he has for us. And when we see moments like this, we get a glimpse that Jesus is able to empathize and meet us in every difficulty. Whether it's the loss of a loved one, Jesus experienced that. And he's there to walk with you. If it's unjust persecution, Jesus has experienced that and is here to walk with you. Whether it's physical suffering, Jesus experienced that, knows what you're experiencing, and is here to walk with you. And even as you face your own death in this life, Jesus stared his down and knows what you're going through. God's son understands. And if you remember last week, what he had promised to those who lay down their life and follow him is that he promises in verse 26 that he is with us. You may not have a single friend in this world, but if you have believed in Jesus, the King of Kings is with you always. And he is there to walk through all of life with us as a faithful king and high priest. Now, not only does he understand the reality of suffering in this life, 
And this is one of the things that is really, really important for us to understand as we read John's gospel and we consider what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus does not promise us a life without suffering. He promises instead that he knows what we're going through and that he will walk through it with us. If you've grown up in a church background that taught you that life will be perfect if you just follow Jesus, you were told a lie. The promise is for the life to come. But we are promised of his presence and his faithfulness to us in all that we experience in this life. Now, not only does Jesus know the reality of his impending suffering, but he also knows the entire purpose he came to earth in the first place was to endure this suffering and die on behalf of sinful men and women. And look at what it causes him to say. Right, he says there in verse 7, my soul is troubled. Right? That's his way of saying everything that I am going through right now as I face the cross is just causing me to basically be in anguish and agony. Like I can't even fathom what I'm about to walk through. And then he says, what shall I say to that? Right? He's, he's speaking aloud to the crowd what he's thinking internally. Like so often when we suffer, we try to fake it and hope, hoping like we fake it till we make it. And, and Jesus is not faking it at all. He's like, what I'm about to walk through is going to be brutal. But what do I say to it? How do I respond to that? This is the entire purpose of me coming to earth in the first place is to endure the cross, the agony of it. The entire reason I came. And I want to pause and just let you sit in that for a minute. Jesus Christ is announcing to these Greeks and his disciples, my entire purpose for coming here was to die a brutal death to save you. As I sit here and think about what I'm about to walk through, I know I must do it so that you, can be forgiven so that you can be adopted in love. Guys, what could this world possibly offer you outside of that level of love? I submit to you nothing. There is nothing this world could offer better than that kind of love. And so in this deliberation, Jesus gives us a glimpse of how he actually is able to endure such hardship. And we miss this if we don't read this carefully. But Jesus is actually both telling us why he must suffer. He's giving us the reality of his anguish in his suffering. But then he also gives us a blueprint as Christ followers on how we might suffer well and endure. Look at what he says. Father, Glorify your name. Now, at face value, that might seem innocuous. might seem like, well, yeah, he just said something. But I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus, in his hour of agony, of his impending murder and crucifixion, submits and depends on his heavenly Father fully. 
You know, in suffering and in difficulty, I think we are often tempted to look for the easy way out. We're tempted to look for ways that might help us medicate our pain, where we look for other people and moments of maybe codependency or whatever it may be, but we look for, for things to help us cope with the reality of our difficulty. We run to things that provide temporary relief or are the easy way out. And often those very things actually end up bringing more suffering and difficulty. Jesus doesn't look for the easy way. Instead, he leans into trust and dependence on his heavenly father. I mean, think about this, right? For him to cry out, knowing what he's about to go through, right? Jesus is displaying that he trusts that his heavenly father is still good, even though he's going to be murdered. He's displaying that he trusts that his heavenly father is right. That for him to suffer at the hand of wicked men is right and just. He trusts that his heavenly father is to be obeyed. Even when he doesn't want to obey him. Jesus doesn't look for the easy way, but instead the way forward is to submit and trust his heavenly father. If you are here this morning and you are suffering or facing a trial or difficulty, God's encouragement to you is to lean into the example of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Lean into dependence on your Heavenly Father. Trust that He is good because He is. It's hard to look at the cross and say, what good could come of that? And yet, supreme good comes from that. It's hard to look at the cross and say, the Father is right. How could an unjust man die for the sins of others? And yet, it was the way in which we are made right before God. Jesus' example of dependence and faith in his heavenly Father is one that we are called to mimic through prayer, through obedience, through repentance and faith. And here's the good news. God promises to us here in his word, both in the example of Christ and in his own words, that your father will be faithful in the midst of suffering and difficulty. If you look back at verse 26, Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Jesus is promising that he will be present. He goes on to say, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And then in Jesus' moment of agony and suffering, he cries out to the Father, and the Father meets him and comforts him. Look at what God the Father says here. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Now, you may be missing what's going on here, right? But Jesus cries out, Father, glorify your name. Meaning, Dad, I'm going to obey you. 
please glorify your name and what I'm about to do. And the father, in a moment of encouragement and love towards his son, son, I have glorified it and I will glorify it through you again. Right? It's almost as if the father is saying to the son, I'm proud of you, keep going. Keep going, my son. I'm proud of you. If you are a Christian here this morning, hear, hear this. Keep going. Keep going. Persevere. Keep going. Glorify him. He's worthy. He's proud of you. He's not proud of you because of your performance. He's proud of you because of what the son did on your behalf. I love that moment where in, in the gospels where Jesus is with the religious leaders and they say, he says, do the works of God. And they're like, well, what are the works of God? And he says, believe in him who was sent of the father. Keep going. Keep believing. Keep the faith. Persevere. Because he is worthy. Now the crowd that's gathered they don't understand what's going on, not surprisingly. I'm, we're not entirely sure why, right? But they, they hear the, the sound, but they don't really even hear the voice, right? Some say it's thunder. Others are like, hey, come on, guys, let's be honest. Like, it's got to be more than that, right? An angel speaking to him. Only Jesus received the assurance, and yet Jesus responds, this voice came for your sake, not for mine. Even though they couldn't ascertain what the voice of the Father was saying, it was still for their benefit. To know that the Father was behind what the Son was about to do. And so that when they remembered this moment, years later when John's recording this gospel, he remembered, oh, of course we heard that. Because the Father is faithful. Of course we heard that. Because the Father was about to glorify his name. Jesus trusts in the Father amidst his anguish, and the Father comforts. And Jesus obeys all the way to the cross. Which leads us to what Jesus talks about next, which is why he needs to go to the cross in the first place and the victory that it will achieve mankind. Right? Look at verse 31 with me. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus says, uses the word now twice there as he's speaking. And what he's basically saying as he preaches this, remember, he's just got done saying, I'm in anguish over what I'm about to do, but Father, I'm going to obey you and I'm going to glorify you. Please glorify me. And then, and then he knows that he's talking about his coming crucifixion and he's telling the crowd, now in that moment, all the things that you have read about in the Old Testament concerning the law, concerning the prophets, concerning the prophecies about the Messiah, things that you have longed for and hoped for that God would do one day, now that reality is here. The moment has finally arrived because I am going to my death. 
And then he shares with the crowd four ways that he is going to declare victory in his crucifixion. Right? The first one is judgment. Right? He says, now is the judgment of this world. And that could seem confusing, but here's what Jesus means by that. The murder of Jesus is going to finally fully show the wickedness of man and their rebellion towards God. We're going to see the religious leaders of the creator of the universe and the wickedness of man fully put on display. Because they're going to kill this man who did nothing wrong. See, the cross brings judgment in that it shows us those who belong to God and believe in his son and those who belong to Satan and deny him. This is why Jesus says in the gospels that there, there is no middle ground with him. If you do not believe in him, you deny him. And if you deny him, you belong to Satan. Unbelief in Jesus is to place oneself in condemnation before God the Father. Belief places one in his mercy, in his forgiveness, and in his adoption as God's children. There is no in-between. And Jesus says, the time has come where you will reveal where you stand. And you will be judged for it. Now, not only does his crucifixion bring judgment, but it also brings the defeat of Satan. Right? He says the ruler of this world is cast out. Jesus wins over the power of Satan by dying in our place. And some of you may be asking, like, well, how? How, like, how could that be? How, how, how has Jesus defeated Satan? I read in Revelation that he's going to be bound up and thrown in the lake of fire. Like, what do you mean that the victory's already won? Well, here is how Jesus' work once and for all cast out Satan from, the, from, from his power hold over this world. If you are not forgiven and loved and in Christ, here's what is true of you. Any accusation that the enemy hurls against you because of your sinfulness is true. You're guilty of it. Any of it. Kevin, you're a bad father. Kevin, you're a bad pastor. Kevin, you're a bad friend. Kevin, that thought you had about that person was evil and wicked. Right? Just accusations coming constantly at us. And if one, if Jesus has not died in our place, he has power over us. Because it's true. And we will die in our sins and trespasses. And he can accuse us of rebellion and discourage us with impending death. But now, because the hour has come, we can laugh at those accusations. Like one of the things I love, I don't know if you guys are crazy like me and you hear voices, 
Right? We all hear these accusations like, you're not enough. You haven't done enough for God. You're not enough for him. You don't deserve what you have. And I'm just able to sit there because of what Christ has done. Say, yep. It's true. Everything you're saying about me is true. Actually, it's probably worse. But Jesus died for me. And he rose again the third day. And he rules and reigns at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And because that is true, I am forgiven and I have life in his name. Jesus has cast out the ruler of this world in victory. He goes on to share that there's victory in the resurrection. He says that the cross is shame in Jewish culture. To, To have been put under the curse of death on a cross was a shameful thing for the Jewish people. And yet in his resurrection from the dead, God declared that Jesus' life paid the penalty for sin once and for all and that we are forgiven and that the Father had raised him to rule, meaning he once was in shame but now is in glory. And in that resurrection, God declared victory over death's hold on all of us. And lastly, we see that Jesus declares victory and that he will draw all people to himself not just the Jews. All people are invited to follow him, to know their God and to be saved. And I don't know about you guys, but I get really excited when I read that part. Because look around this room this morning. The people sitting next to you are examples of that victory that Jesus is talking about here in John 12. Guys, my ancestors, I don't know exactly where they were, but somewhere in Northern Europe, worshiping Thor or Bark. Like, who knows? Right? Anything but the God of the universe. And yet God and his loving kindness towards his creation sent Jesus for everyone. not just the Jewish people. And we gather here this morning to worship him and to recognize his victory at the cross. And we have brothers and sisters who have already done that on the other side of the globe and more who will do it later today. Because Jesus is gathering all people to himself. So we see Jesus is anguish. We see Jesus' obedience to the point of death, death on a cross, and his victory over, over Satan, sin, and death. And then we see, lastly, his appeal. Look at verse 34. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. So Jesus has just revealed that he's going to die. 
and the crowd actually seems to get it for once. I kind of love this moment because even the disciples hadn't gotten it earlier, but the Greek crowd kind of gets it. And yet, look at their response. It leads to confusion, not to just like belief and obedience. They're, they're basically saying to him here, what kind of Messiah are you? Like, who wants to follow a dead king? The Messiah, we know from Scripture, is supposed to live forever. And there's all sorts of examples in the Old Testament where they would have gotten this line of thinking. But one of them specifically comes from Psalm chapter uh, 89. Let me read that to you, starting in verse 35. This is the Lord speaking. He says, Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Right? Jews would have read that verse and known that they were talking about the coming Messiah and that he would come through the line of David and that he would rule forever. And so here, these Greeks are standing there with the disciples and they're like, wait, what? You're, okay, hold on. You're the king and the king rules and reigns forever and yet you're telling us you're about to die. Not not tracking. Basically, they're saying, why should we believe in you? You seem to be contradicting scripture. What good is a dead king? And Jesus's response, not surprisingly, does not answer their question. Because he's going to press into them the urgency of the impending moment and the importance of faith. Let me just pause for a second here. This is not in my notes, so be ready. All of us in this room are a product of, an, of the Enlightenment. You, some of you have no idea what the Enlightenment is because you didn't pay attention in history. Okay, go home, look it up. Okay, the Enlightenment right, ultimately teaches us that the value above all else that we are supposed to hold to is rationality and logic. That if we can't figure it out or we can't know it, then it can't be true. And here we're faced with this moment of logic in John chapter 12, where these people who have gathered with Jesus are saying, well, hold on a minute. We know what God's word says, and God's word says that the Messiah will live forever and that his kingdom will be forever. And yet you're the king and you're claiming you're about to die. Logically, this doesn't match up. Jesus, like, what's going on here, Jesus? Right? They're like pre-enlightenment people. And Jesus, instead of leaning into logic and, and discussion, which he could have done, right, instead just simply tells them, trust me. I've been trustworthy before. Why would I start lying now? Right? He says, listen to me. Darkness is coming, referring to death. I'm only here with you a little while longer. Don't trust in some philosophy about me. Listen to me. And while I'm here, listen to what I'm teaching you because failure to do so will lead to the darkness overtaking you and you will be dead in your sins. Friends, here's, let me translate that for you into 2023 language. You are not God, therefore you can't know everything. 
And it is perfectly reasonable and okay to have doubts. That is a normal part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. But what I will submit to you is you will never in your lifetime find all the answers to all the questions you will have because you are not God. And there are some things that God does not share with us because we can't handle it. Just as a parent slowly gives more freedom and ability to their kids as they're able to handle more, so God does with his children. And yet there are some things that we can never handle because we are finite and he is the infinite. He is the omnipresent, omniscient, all-knowing God and creator of the universe who has always existed and will always exist. Sit there and try to wrap your mind around that for a minute. If you find things about God difficult that you cannot understand, it's because you weren't created to understand them in the first place. And there is an aspect here that is happening right before our very eyes in John 12, where Jesus is saying, just like, I'm good, just trust me. Believe in the light while you have the light with you. Trust in what I'm telling you. Believe in me. I am the light. And that would inevitably, especially if you are here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, to ask yourself the question, why would I trust him? Why would Jesus be worthy of that? And the answer is because you'll be made alive for the first time and finally know who you are and have an identity. Look at what he says. While you have the light... Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. As he's talking about a new identity for you if you are a Christian. You are a son of light. And, and, and ladies, hear me on this. That's not some sexist trope. To be a, called a son of light means that you have the full right to all that God promises his children. Because in Jewish culture, right, the inheritance went to the firstborn son. And so to make sure that there's no confusion, God just says, everyone's a son. You all have access as children of God. And this is huge. This means you're forgiven. This means you're loved. It means you can obey God truly and fully for the first time. It means you you can experience the presence of God in your life. It means that you have eternal life. And it means that you have the honor of the Father as a member of his family. And here's why I know this matters. Because every single one of us in this room this morning is insecure on some level. On some level, every single one of us is insecure. Some of you are like, I'm not insecure. Yep, that's how you cope with it, by saying you're not insecure. You make the rest of us think you're not. You wonder how I know that? That's how I operate. I know you. You pretend not to care. You look really good at it. Other people are like, how do you not care? Just don't. Deep down, you care. 
And in that insecurity, who am I? Am I enough? Will I amount to anything? Does my life matter? Jesus cries out, yes! So much so that I'll die for you. So much so that I will endure the cross on your behalf to secure you in God's love. The security was purchased by the blood of the Lamb. And the call he gives us here is to believe in him, the light, so that we might become children of light.